This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash insight hour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash insight hour. Welcome to the Joseph Goldstein Insight Hour. This podcast is an expression of our shared interest in self-discovery. Join Joseph as he shares his deep knowledge of the path of mindfulness. If you are interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Joseph. Tonight I'd like to continue the discussion of mindfulness of the Dhammas, the fourth foundation of mindfulness, with respect to the aggregates of mental formations and consciousness. So last week we talked about sankharas, or the mental formations, which is the fourth of the five aggregates. These are all those factors of mind apart from feeling and perception that are the building blocks of our thoughts, of our emotions, of our moods, of different mind states. According to the Abhidhamma, the Buddhist psychology, there are 52 of these mental factors, different qualities of the mind. Some of them are wholesome, some of them are unwholesome, Some of them are ethically neutral. But they all color consciousness, each in their own particular way, according to their own characteristics. And so just as a reminder, as an example of some of these mental factors, it's things like desire and aversion, of restlessness, of doubt, of concentration, mindfulness, wisdom, rapture, energy, all of those different states of mind that we experience, each of them is called a mental factor. By being mindful of them as they arise in our experience, whenever they become predominant, we begin to see directly for ourselves that each of these factors is impermanent. It arises, it's there, it passes away. And we see its impersonal or non-personal nature. It's arising out of causes. So in this aggregate of sankhara, of mental formations, which includes all of these different mental factors, the Buddha highlighted one particular factor as being the chief, 
as being the one of them all that plays a very, very critical role. And so he highlighted this particular one. And sometimes the word sankara itself refers just to this one factor. And that is the mental factor of intention or volition. And the Pali word for that is jetana. So Bhikkhu Bodhi, you know, that wonderful American monk who studied for so long in Sri Lanka and is this amazing scholar, you know, and has done these fantastic translations of the discourses. He described the function of jetana volition as being that factor which is concerned with the actualization of a goal. Okay, it's that quality of mind that's concerned with actualizing a particular goal. So we could think of it somewhat as like being the chief of staff of the mind. You know, it conditions all the other factors to accomplish a specific purpose. Now, intention or volition is common to every moment of consciousness. And so in every moment, it's functioning to organize and gather all of the other associated factors. It's gathering them together, directing them together for a particular end. So what makes this factor so important? Why did the Buddha highlight it? Now, in this teaching of the five aggregates, volition or jetana is of such crucial importance, both in understanding our lives and also in understanding the possibilities for happiness in our lives, is because it is this factor of volition which carries the karmic force of the action. So volition, and the Buddha has said this, that volition is karma. That's the factor of mind that carries the force. So what this means is that all of our intentional volitional actions, and I'm using these two words synonymously, intentional and volitional. So all of these volitional actions of body, speech, and mind have the power, because of the volition, to bring about results. So this is tremendously important. It means that the actions we do, whether it's actions of our body, actions of speech, actions of mind, are not happening in isolation. They're not happening in a vacuum. It's not as if we do the action and then it's done and over with. The Buddha is pointing out that because of volition, when we're willing an action, that power of volition, the power of it is to create fruit. It's to create results. So there's a trail of results that come from each of our actions. We could think of volition 
or the energy of intention is being like the potential of a seed. You know, a seed can be a very small thing. And yet out of a seed, you know, can come a giant redwood tree. There's huge potential in a seed that we may not see in the moment. But as it germinates and matures, not only does one fruit come from a seed, but each seed can produce many fruits. So this is the power of volition, the power that's driving our actions. So what determines the particular karmic fruit of each of these volitional actions, whether it brings us happiness or suffering in our lives, whether it's sweet fruit or bitter fruit, is the motivation associated with the intention. So the volition, intention, that's a neutral factor. It's just that gathering force in the mind. It's what gathers all the factors to accomplish a goal. So it's that intention which has the power, carries the power of karma. But what determines the result is what are the associated factors, what are the motivations associated with that intention. Of course, the famous opening verses of the Dhammapada just expresses this so clearly. The Buddha said, mind is the forerunner of all things. All deeds are led by mind, created by mind. If one speaks or acts with an unwholesome or impure mind, suffering follows like the wheel of the ox cart follows the hoof of the ox. Not a very contemporary image, but I think it's clear enough. The fruits of the act follow the act inexorably. So if we act with an unwholesome motivation, in one way or another, suffering follows. It says, mind is the forerunner of all things. All deeds are led by mind, created by mind. If one speaks or acts with a skillful mind, with a pure mind, happiness follows like one's shadow, which never leaves. So how can we sort out, you know, what's wholesome, what's unwholesome? I have so much gratitude to the Buddha for sorting it all out. You know, when you just think, it's hard enough just for us to watch our breath. And yet here's someone who had such amazing depth and clarity of mind. He could look into the mind and actually sort out all of these different factors and what led to what. And it's quite amazing. Of course, we can test it for ourselves. The Buddha talked of how the three roots of all unwholesome actions are greed, our hatred, or aversion, and our ignorance, delusion. 
So we can know if those factors are in the mind in one form or another. If we're acting out of greed, if we're acting out of aversion or hatred, if we're acting out of delusion or ignorance, suffering follows. And he pointed out the three wholesome roots are just the opposite. Non-greed, which is generosity, non-hatred, which is non-ill will or loving kindness, non-delusion, which is wisdom. If those are operating in the mind, we know that the results will bring us happiness. So he clarified this to a, to a you know, marvelous extent for us. In this teaching, we need to remember that it is the motive, the motivation, which is the determining factor for the result which follows. So this is expressed in one teaching which I reflect on so often. It just seems such a powerful, incisive reminder to us where it says everything rests on the tip of motivation. That how often in our lives do we actually pay attention before we act to examining or investigating our motivation? Probably not that often. You know, because we just get carried away in the momentum of our lives and our actions and our habit patterns. If we are contemplating this aggregate, sankhara, with respect to the power of intention, the power of volition, and what it brings, so then it can inspire us to practice paying attention before we act, before we speak, before we get lost in some you know, mind drama, what is the motivation associated with it? Is it bringing happiness? Is it bringing suffering? So a question for us, you know, in meditation, is how can we practice seeing and understanding this factor of volition, of jetana? So it's not just kind of Buddhist philosophy. How do we actually experience intention? Can we train ourselves to see it, to be aware of it, to be mindful of it? It's important that we practice becoming mindful of intention not only because of its karmic potential, which is certainly reason enough, but also because we very often unknowingly identify with intention. We identify with volition. And we have a sense of this because even as we become more mindful of all or many of the different mental factors that appear, you know, we can become mindful of aversion or mindful of desire, mindful of being concentrated you know, mindful of happiness, of sadness, of grief. So even as we can become mindful of them and begin to see their impermanence, their not-self, they arise out of conditions, they pass away, still we can easily fall into the identification 
with the volition behind our actions, the felt sense that in the midst of all the actions and activities of our lives, it's that felt sense of, well, I'm the one willing all this. I'm the one who's intending all this. And so intention can become a subtle hideout of self because we haven't particularly trained ourselves to notice the intention very precisely. So how can we practice this? You know, being on retreat in this environment is, provides a perfect place to refine our awareness of intention. Although intention is a common factor, which means it's arising in every moment, it's not always the most predominant one. So in practicing becoming mindful of intention, we want to pick those situations where it's most obvious, where we don't have to go searching for it. You know, in those very obvious situations. For example... We can begin practicing noticing the intention before a change of posture. Before we're reaching for something. Before the body turns. These, These are things that are clearly not happening of their own accord. The body by itself doesn't change posture. The body by itself doesn't reach for something. It doesn't turn. It's so clear that there has to be something in the mind which is directing it to do these things. There's some energetic quality in the mind which is willing the action. So in these very obvious movements, we can begin to see it. We can see it in various ways we might get a forewarning of intention through being aware of a thought to do something. Now, the thought may arise in the mind. Oh, I want to get that. I want to reach for that. I want to go someplace. I want to do something. So the thought is telling us, it's kind of the forewarning, you know, that an action is about to happen And it can set us up then for paying attention to the intention that actually moves us. So thought itself is not the volition, but it can alert us to the intentional action that may follow. Okay, so we're... we're in the setup zone, we know, you know, a movement is going to happen. And then we're just watching. And if we're very careful in our observation, sometimes we begin to feel a kind of energetic, you know, an energetic gathering or a welling up of energy that's going to initiate the movement. You know, it's just that gathering and the mental energy to move the arm, to reach, or to turn, or to change posture. Sometimes we might not even feel anything so tangible. 
You know, we might not feel that energetic welling in the mind, but we might simply be aware that there's a knowing we're about to do something. Do you recognize when you're being mindful in a kind of series of actions, and if we're going slowly enough, so we're not just, you know, skipping over these, these powerful moments, we're moving along, moving along, and then there's a knowing, a silent knowing that we're about to reach, about to turn, about to move. So I often think of intention as the about-to moment. Very helpful, at least at times, to be going slowly enough so that we can allow ourselves that moment's pause before an action so there can be an acknowledgement of, of about to move and then the movement so much is revealed in that moment. First, we begin to see the cause and effect relationship between the mind and body. We see that the body's not moving by itself. It's moving because of a mental intention. It also opens up the place of choice. If we can be aware of the about-to moment before we actually move, then is a moment, we can bring some wise discernment to that moment. Is this skillful? Is it not skillful? Now, how often, not here, of course, but maybe at home, you know, how often is just our hand in the refrigerator before we know how it even got there? You know, it's just kind of <laughs> probably not too aware of the about-to moment. So it opens up a chance to make wiser choices in our lives. What's also interesting to observe is that intention or this volition is not only happening at the beginning of an action, but it's happening all the way through an action. And the example is given as like an electric current running a motor at any time or a light, you know, at any time the electric current stops, the motor stops running or the light goes off. It needs that continual flow of electricity to keep going. Every action we do needs the continual flow of intentions to keep it going. It's not only one that initiates it. And so you can play with this. I, I, I've often had a lot of fun just in the, the simplicity of walking meditation and tuning in to volition, to intention, and just noticing, like, even in mid-step, what happens if the intention to keep moving stops? The foot stops. And then kind of charge it up again. <laughs> it is possible to have fun with this. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like just, it's this, it's this investigation of how this whole thing is working, and especially this very amazing interconnection between the mind and body and understanding what the mind is, what the body is, you know, and how they work together. This is all the teaching of the five aggregates. It's really 
the Buddha's analysis of our subjective experience. He's saying, you know, if you look in this way, you'll begin to sort it all out. Take time in your practice to be mindful of these moments of intention, these about-to moments. You know, when the mind is quite still, you can sometimes even be aware of the intention to think. You know, when the mind is really quiet, it's almost you can feel the welling up of uh, about-to-think. And then the thought follows. And sometimes not, if, if you catch the intention. Sometimes it's just about to, no, and it subsides. Take an investigative interest in this particular factor. The Buddha highlighted it. I mean, in this fourth aggregate of Sankara, he's saying of all of the different mental factors, volition is the chief. So it's worth our interest to see how it's working. Because it's this volition which holds the power, contains the power to bring about results. And this has such amazing impact in our lives. I'm just struck by how little we reflect that what we experience now in our lives is the fruit of all of our many past volitions. And it was not happening accidentally, and it's not happening uh, without reason or without cause. You know, the Buddha said it's, we are the heirs of our own actions. But especially in our culture, we don't, we haven't grown up with this understanding. We don't frame our experience usually in this way. The Buddha is saying, you know, this is important. This is a key piece in understanding how our lives unfold. So we should really investigate this. Just as a reminder of the liberating power of the practice, knowing that volition, each volitional action bears fruit, depending on the motivation, when mindfulness is present, when the mental factor of mindfulness is present in the volition, mindfulness has the power to bring together, to attract all the other wholesome factors. So when mindfulness is present, it's like a party of wholesomeness. So every volitional action that we do with mindfulness just brings about all of the fruits of wholesome action because our mind at that time, in every moment of mindfulness, Each of those volitions, when we're being mindful, the mind is filled with a whole array of wholesome factors. 
So there's a, there's a tremendous power you know, in this. Okay, so this is the fourth of the aggregates. I spoke a lot about it last week and now this week, particularly with regard to intention or volition. The last of the five aggregates is consciousness. In Pali, the term used is vijnana. This is the cognizing power of the mind. It's that function or that quality of the mind which simply knows. Now, consciousness in the teachings is often uh, designated by different types. It's delineated. Seeing consciousness, hearing consciousness, smelling, tasting, touching consciousness, consciousness of mind objects. So it's delineated according to what its object is. But the way consciousness functions in all of these different situations is just the same. So the quality of consciousness, whether the object is a sight or a sound or a smell or a taste, or, the quality of consciousness is the same in each case. And again, it's the quality, we could say, of bare knowing or simple knowing. So this has a powerful implication in our lives. Namely, that the characteristic of knowing does not change in different circumstances. No matter what we're experiencing, whether it's pleasant, whether it's unpleasant, the quality of knowing is exactly the same. You know, the consciousness may be colored by different mental factors at different times. Colored by greed, colored by aversion, colored by wisdom, you know, by concentration. But the knowing faculty, just that particular characteristic of knowing, functions in the same way regardless of what it is that's arising. So in this sense, we could call it like a mirror-like awareness. You know, the nature of a mirror is simply to reflect what comes in front of it. And that nature of the mirror is not changed. It's not affected by what it is that is reflecting. Likewise, the quality of knowing is not altered by what it is that's being known. One of the most inspiring examples of this insight. And again, it has a powerful implication for us, you know, what this means. One of the most inspiring examples for me of this insight is that of uh, Henry David Thoreau. And, you know, many of you on other retreats may have, you know, heard this often. He died in his 40s. He was 44, I think, and he was dying of TB. But he had an amazing wisdom, you know, evidently without any formal 
meditation practice, but maybe his time at Walden Pond was just sitting and walking, <laughs> sitting and walking around the pond. Anyway, this was written by a friend of his, you know, who was visiting him at the time of his dying. And this friend wrote, Henry was never affected, never reached by his illness. Very often I have heard him tell his visitors that he enjoyed his existence as well as ever. Remember, he's dying of TB, which is not a pleasant thing. He remarked to me that there was as much comfort in perfect disease as in perfect health, the mind always conforming to the condition of the body. That statement is amazing. Could we say that? There's as much comfort in perfect disease as in perfect health. Well, to the extent that we understand this mirror-like quality of knowing, that consciousness simply knows it's not affected by what is being known. The mind always conforms to the condition of the body. The mind simply knows. There's a tremendous freedom in that. He said the thought of death could not begin to trouble him. So there's there's a tremendous uh, wisdom and application of this insight in our lives. In these teachings of the aggregates, the Buddha gives a special emphasis to understanding the impermanent conditioned nature of consciousness. And so this is really important. So just as an example, seeing consciousness arises when four causes are present. There needs to be the organ of the eye in working order. There needs to be a visible object. There needs to be light. And there needs to be attention. And if any of these four causes are missing, seeing consciousness is not going to arise. Consciousness arises out of conditions. And the Buddha emphasized the contingent nature of consciousness in response to a monk named Sati. And Sati had the view that there was just one consciousness that went from life to life. There was one consciousness throughout this life and went from life to life. So this is a little dialogue the Buddha is having with Sati. And it's the Buddha in his fearsome mode. So Sati was saying, it is the same consciousness that runs and wanders through the round of rebirths. The Buddha then asked Sati, What is that consciousness? And Sati replied, It is that which speaks and feels and experiences here and there the results of good and bad actions. Sati saying, okay, it is that which speaks and feels and experiences the result of good and bad actions. And then the Buddha said, misguided man, (laughs) To whom have you ever known me to teach the Dharma in that way? 
misguided man, in many discourses, have I not stated consciousness to be dependently arisen, since without a condition, there is no origination of consciousness. So this is pretty direct, where the Buddha is saying that consciousness itself is a conditioned phenomenon. It's impersonal, arising out of causes, arising out of conditions, moment to moment. So here we see that consciousness is not something that's permanent. It's not something that's always present, kind of waiting for an object to appear, to be known. But rather, consciousness itself is a process continually arising and passing away, moment after moment. We don't often see this very clearly because of the rapidity with which it's arising and passing. According to the Abhidhamma teachings, the lifespan of consciousness, which in the terminology is called a mind moment, is such that in the blink of an eye, there are billions of mind moments. I've always wondered how (laughs) they ever counted. (laughs) Five billion. But the point is that it's not one continuous or not uh, one steady state. The consciousness itself is a flow. So in, in Bhikkhu Bodhi's book, uh, Manual of Abhidhamma, uh, he, he, write in, he writes so clearly. He said, within the breadth of a mind moment, consciousness arises performs its momentary function, and then dissolves, conditioning the next consciousness in immediate succession. The flow of consciousness continues uninterrupted like the water in a stream. You know, it's just such a clear image of the nature of our minds, the nature of knowing. So how can we begin to get a handle on this for ourselves? And how can we begin to experience this directly so it's not just you know, what's said in the Abhidhamma? There are different perspectives we can bring to our investigation of consciousness. One comes from the understanding that the more mindful we are of the arising object, the clearer the consciousness of it becomes. The more mindful we are of the sensation, of the sound, of the movement, of whatever the object is, the more mindful, the closer we are in the observation of it, that very process of closer and closer attention and mindfulness, that process refines the quality of consciousness. It's like just by this continuity of very careful mindfulness, the consciousness itself becomes very clear and very lucid. 
So that's that's one way of beginning to allow the experience of this clear, vivid knowing uh, become very obvious to us. There's another approach that I found really helpful, and I've mentioned to quite a few of you in interviews. Another way of investigating directly the nature of this knowing, and that is by reframing our experience in English, linguistically, in the passive voice. Because the language we use, whether voiced or unvoiced, to describe experience, the language we use very much conditions how we experience things. So language is powerful. Usually, in our lives... Our usual linguistic construction is the active voice. I'm hearing, I'm seeing, I'm going, I'm thinking, I'm feeling. And so the very language we're using, again, whether it's spoken or not, is just reinforcing the subject. It's reinforcing the sense of self. Almost every time we speak or think. It's reinforcing the sense of the witness, the observer behind experience, you know, to whom it's happening. So a way of cutting through this, way of cutting through this subjective sense is reframing the experience linguistically, putting it in the passive voice. For example, a sound being known, a thought being known a sensation being known. And it's not that we need to continually repeat this phrase in our mind. It's just using the phrase as a way of allowing us to drop into the experience from that perspective. This became very clear to me in walking meditation. And just doing the walking meditation, it's so obvious that the sensations that are appearing, the sensations are simply coming as a function of the movement. You know, if you lift the foot, there are going to be certain sensations appearing, moving forward and placing. So to be in the walking, framing it in this way, you're just walking, sensations appearing and being known. There's no one there doing anything. This passive voice construction takes the I out of it. There's no subject. Does this seem clear? It's very simple. This is not some esoteric, you know, meditative experience. This is very simple. It's just you're walking and it's just the sensations are appearing. It's like sensations appearing in space and being known. And to remind oneself to frame it in that way. When you do, we realize some different things about the nature of consciousness. It's very illuminating about the nature of this aggregate, of knowing, this 
this thing that's so fundamental. One of the things we see is that the consciousness, the knowing, is arising simultaneously with the object. It's not a hair's breadth before, it's not a hair's breadth after, the knowing is rising absolutely simultaneous together with the object, whether it's a sound, a sensation, a thought. And we see that the consciousness is also arising spontaneously. When you're walking and are just in that experience of the sensations being known, do you have to prompt the consciousness, the knowing, to be there? No. It's happening just by itself. You're walking, the sensations are appearing, they're being known, they're being known exactly, vividly, in the moment of their arising, absolutely simultaneous and completely spontaneous. So it becomes very effortless. We're just settled back in this amazing experience, moment after moment, and you can, you can be in this flow throughout the whole day. Just this flow of different experiences, different objects being known, simultaneously, spontaneously. So whether we're attending to each object of experience actively, you know, sending the mind to the object, refining the consciousness through that kind of careful mindfulness, or we're attending to it passively, in the way I just described, receiving each object, seeing how each object is being known, as the mind settles, practicing in either of these ways or some combination, as the mind settles, you know, for some sustained periods of time, this continued mindfulness and investigation lead us to different insights, different insight experiences about the nature of consciousness. And so this is, this is our direct exploration of the knowing mind. One of the insights is called purification of view. And at this experience, we are seeing each moment as a paired progression of knowing an object. There's knowing of a sight, knowing of a sound, knowing of a smell, knowing of a taste, knowing of sensations. Every moment of experience is a paired progression, knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object. When we see this, we see that there is no one behind this paired progression to whom it is happening. It's not that there's an I or a self lurking behind. What we call I or self is this paired progression knowing an object arising and passing in each moment.
At this time, we can really distinguish very clearly the difference between nama rupa, between mentality and the physical material elements. So just as a rather strange example, you know, highlighting this insight, imagine a corpse and by some means... Maybe, you you know, you move the arm of the corpse or maybe you pump it with air in its chest, uh, rises and then contracts. Okay, clearly the physical movement is there. But is in that corpse, as far as we know, is there any knowing of that movement? It doesn't look like it. You know, it's just the physical matter is there, but there is no knowing. Yet when being alive, there's the movement of our arms, you know, or our chest, not only is there the physical movement as was in the corpse, there's something else. Well, knowing is that something else. And so we can begin to really see the difference between what's just material elements and what is the mind, what is consciousness. This is a very important understanding of this mind-body process. It's really the beginning of understanding selflessness, that what we call self, what we call I, is simply this process of knowing an object arising and passing moment after moment. It's just well, there's so much to say about this. We want to be able to distinguish knowing from the object. It's two different things. They're different and distinct, but not separable. So this is an important idea that something can be distinct but inseparable. What does that mean? If you look at something you can see both its color and its form, right? The color is in a form, and the form has a color. Form and color are inseparable, and yet they're two very different aspects. They're quite distinguishable, and we we can easily understand the distinction. Mind and object, knowing an object is like that. You cannot separate them, but you can distinguish as clearly as you can distinguish a color and form of an object, color and shape. As we continue the practice, you know, and our perception of impermanence becomes more and more refined. There are times when we can see the momentary dissolution of consciousness. We are really seeing the impermanence in the flow of moments of knowing. We begin to see that the knowing, we see this is direct experience, that consciousness itself is just dissolving, like water over a waterfall. And at this time, it becomes so obvious that there is nothing to hold on to. 
you know, there's no stability, there's no security in this at all. There's no place to take a stand. It's as if suddenly we're on a, the sands of a, of a shifting slope. Nothing's lasting long enough to call I, to call self. At this time, sometimes people get a bit discouraged because it feels like the meditation has gone to pieces. These things are dissolving, both the object and, and the knowing is dissolving so quickly. It feels as if it's impossible to be mindful. The mindfulness is not landing anyplace, and the mindfulness itself is dissolving. And so people often feel, oh, I can't meditate in the mindfulness, I've lost it somehow. But actually, it's a deepening of the practice, a deepening of seeing the fleeting momentary nature of the knowing itself. So if we can stay steady through that difficult time, we come to even deeper experiences of the nature of consciousness. And some of the some of the very great masters of the Theravada tradition uh, described from this mature place of insight, uh, kind of this quality of the mind. So I want to just read a few a few of these descriptions because they're so uh, they're so clear. One is from a Thai monk, Ajahn, Ajahn Jamnian, uh, who's a wonderful. Monk, he, he's uh, still alive. He's visited uh, the states. Uh, he's a great practitioner of metta, uh, and just seems to reside in this open quality of awareness. He wrote, "At some point, the mind becomes so clear and balanced that whatever arises is seen and left untouched, with no interference." One ceases to focus on any particular content and all is simply seen as mind and matter, an empty process arising and passing away of its own, a perfect balance of mind with no reactions. There is no longer any doing. So our practice comes to this place just through the development of the mindfulness and concentration and insight there is no longer any doing. Perfect balance of mind with no reactions. Then this is from Mahasi Sayadaw, um, describing in a little more detail this place of equanimity. He wrote, at times the number of different objects to note may shrink to one or two or all objects may even disappear. However, at this time, the knowing consciousness is still present. In this very clear open space, in this very clear open space of the sky, there remains only one very clear blissful consciousness, which is very clear beyond comparison and very blissful. Yogis tend to take delight in this clear, blissful consciousness. This is known as dhamma-raga, dhamma-lust. At this time, it has to be noted 
knowing, knowing, knowing. This is a critical point. You know, when the mind, the consciousness gets so clear and so refined and maybe all the other objects disappear, that's all that's left is that open sky of the mind. The open, blissful, clear consciousness. It's important to be mindful of that because it's so easy to become subtly identified with it. Somebody today in an interview gave me this saying by the 12th century uh, Chan master, Tao Hui. It's, It's a wonderful line. As soon as there's something considered important, it becomes a nest. And I just think how how often we create these nests in our lives, and even in this very refined state of consciousness where we're experiencing, you know, the openness and the bliss and the clarity of this consciousness, if we latch onto that, become identified with that, that becomes the nest. It's very easy to mistake refined states of consciousness for the mind released, for the mind freed. And this one last teaching I want to read is from Ajahn Mahabua, who is still alive. He's one of the great Thai forest masters. He's considered to be an arhant. And he's been very, in his writings, he's, he's very acknowledging of his own process of becoming an arhant. You know, he's, he just, just has described, you know, his path and his experience all the way up to the highest. And he, he says something very uh, profound here about how we need to relate to consciousness itself in this very refined state. He wrote, once when I went to practice at Wat Do Dhamma Chedi, the name of a temple, the problem of unawareness, of ignorance, had me bewildered for quite some time. At that stage, the mind was so radiant that I came to marvel at its radiance. Everything of every sort which could make me marvel seemed to have gathered there in the mind to the point where I began to marvel at myself. Why is it that my mind is so marvelous? Looking at the body, I couldn't see it at all. It was all space, empty. The mind was radiant in full force. But luckily, as soon as I began to marvel at myself, to the point of exclaiming deludedly in the heart without being conscious of it, Why has my mind come so far? At that moment, a statement of Dhamma spontaneously arose. This too I hadn't anticipated. It suddenly appeared as if someone were speaking in the heart, although there was no one there speaking. It simply appeared as a statement. If there is a point or a center of the knower anywhere, That is an agent of birth. That is what it said. 
if there's a point or a center of the knower anywhere, that is an agent of birth. So this is a very critical point. As long as there is any identification at all with anything, even with consciousness, as long as there is any identification, we are creating that reference point of self. We're still bound by the conventional mind. So in our practice, you know, through mindfulness, through investigation, through wisdom, we keep deconstructing the sense of self until only the genuine ease, the genuine freedom remains. And so in our practice, we just are first refining our understanding of the nature of consciousness, the nature of knowing. It gets increasingly vivid and clear and refined and radiant. And then that itself becomes the object of our awareness, freeing ourselves from identification with that as well. So next week, I'd like to conclude this section on the five aggregates, the section of the Satipatthana Sutta, of how we can use this framework of these five aggregates that we've been discussing over these last weeks, of the material elements, of feeling, of perception, of volitional formations, of consciousness, of how we can use this framework of the aggregates to actually come to the place of freedom. Because that's the point of all this. You know, the Buddha was not giving these teachings just as some philosophic understanding. All of the teachings are pointing to how we can free ourselves. There's a book by René Domal, a Frenchman. It's quite old now. It's called Mount Analog. And it's, the book is a, a metaphor of the spiritual journey climbing Mount Analog. And he wrote in this book, keep your eye fixed on the path to the top, but don't forget to look right in front of you. The last step depends on the first. Don't think you're there just because you see the summit. Watch your footing. Be sure of the next step. But don't let that distract you from the highest goal. The first step depends on the last. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, 
flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash hour today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash hour. 